Please turn to Proverbs chapter 18. I want to read two verses as we begin. I really appreciate singing that song. I wish my youngest son was here. That is his favorite song. The battle belongs to the Lord. Proverbs 18 and verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. There's two options here. We can serve God, we can trust in God, or we can go in another direction. But whatever you trust in, you've got to make sure that it's real. The problem is all the other options available for security, for trust, they're only in our mind. A rich man's wealth is his strong city like a high wall in his imagination. It's not really there. If you're going to put your trust in something, make sure it is dependable. This evening, we want to have our eyes open to the power of God. God's power to deliver His people. God's power to protect His people even when we don't know we need protection. You remember the story in Numbers 22 and tw through 24? where several people in the nation of Moab have decided that they're going to try and destroy Israel, and they're going to do it behind Israel's back. Not all the people of Moab even know what's going on. Balak calls Balaam. They're going to meet in a secret place, and they're going to curse Israel. Israel doesn't know what's going on. They don't know they're in danger. And in the midst of all of the trouble that is arising around them, God simply stops Balaam from doing this. The Lord protects Israel even when they don't know they're in trouble. Or like Elisha, who goes out and has his, the eyes of his servant opened and he begins to see that the Arameans have snuck in overnight and surrounded us. But now his eyes are open and he sees that God is actually surrounding him and protecting him. The Lord protects us when we don't even realize we need protecting. If we're going to be victorious in our spiritual battles, we are going to have to trust in God. Because there's going to be times when the enemy is mobilized and we do not even realize it. And I realize I'm already behind on my PowerPoint slide. As we think about these things, though, let's have a prayer. O Lord God of heaven and earth, power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Lord, we pray that you help us to realize who you are, what you are capable of, and that we throw ourselves on you and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we look at the book of 2 Chronicles, I want to talk a little bit about Exodus. The Lord's victory over the Egyptians in Exodus 14 and 15 becomes a paradigm for God's deliverance throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The Exodus is the greatest act of God's deliverance. It's constantly coming up over and over again in the Old Testament. God takes someone who is weak and helpless and delivers them from oppression, from the most powerful nation in the world. God can do this once, He can do it again. God can defend those who are in trouble. The Lord shows that He is a great warrior who can help us. 
But I want you to notice in particular something that happens immediately after this that reminds Israel in Exodus 17 of God's power. Most of the battles in the Old Testament focus on the important things. How many weapons are involved? How many people are involved? But that's not the case in the battle in Exodus 17. Israel has just come out of Egypt and the Amalekites are attacking them. Moses tells Joshua, go and get some troops together and fight against them. How many troops does he need? He doesn't say. What weapons are they going to take? Doesn't say. How many troops are they fighting against? Doesn't say. What kind of weapons do they have? Doesn't matter. There's only one thing about this battle that you need to know. Success or failure depends entirely on Israel's response to the Lord. And so as long as Moses is on the hill praying to God... Israel is victorious. If he ever loses track of that goal, loses track of his focus, and starts trusting in himself or taking a break, Israel cannot survive on their own. Stripping away the discussion of weapons, stripping away the discussion of size, gets us to focus on the main issue in this battle. Are we going to trust in the Lord? Israel's military success is going to correspond to their dependence on the Lord. So by the end of Deuteronomy, as Moses is preparing people to come into the land, he said, how do we prepare for battle? In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 to 9, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 to 9, The priest is supposed to gather all of the people together and tell them this in verse 3. Deuteronomy 20 and verse 3. He will say to the people, Hear, O Israel, you're approaching the enemy, the, the battle against your enemy today. Don't be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to save you. Well, why would they be worried anyway? Because of verses 1 and 2. When you come to the battle line and you see the enemy is bigger than you are, when you come to the battle line and realize that the enemy is more prepared weapon-wise than you are, there's going to be a tendency to think, oh, we need that, right? That's our problem. If we had that chariot, we would be prepared for battle too. If we had our army arranged in this way, if we had more soldiers, we would be prepared to fight this battle. But actually, the priest reiterates this. He said, it doesn't matter about weapons, and it also doesn't matter about people. Is anybody here scared? Go home. We don't want you. We don't want size. We're not concerned about just having people here. We'd rather have just a few who trust in God. Whoever are willing to trust in God, that is who we will move with. Weapons don't matter. Numbers don't matter. Our relationship with God matters. Let's make sure that we're prepared for battle by trusting in Him. So now let's think about Chronicles. You're familiar with the Gospels and the Epistles. Some of the first things that happen in these books become important for the rest of the book. The same is true in 1 Chronicles. I was talking with Mr. Holder just last night, and we were talking about how exciting 1 Chronicles 1-9 to is reading. All of these genealogies, right? It's so easy to pass over. But in the midst of these genealogies, it gives us a clue as what's going to be important in the book of Chronicles. 
the priests and the Levites and the temple are going to be very important. What happens with David's line and the line of Judah is going to be very important. But there's one thing in particular in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 that I want you to notice. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. It deals with the history of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that is the tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan, in verses 18 to 26, when they're first coming into the land in the days of Joshua, and after they're taken out of the land by the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. But when they first come into the land, in verse 18, they have a few warriors, about 44,000, and they make war against some of the inhabitants of the land. But I want you to notice verse 20. How does the battle go when they first come into the land? 1 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 20, They were helped against them, and the Hagarites and all who were with them were given into their hands, for they cried out to the Lord in battle, and He answered their prayer because they trusted in Him. Why is Israel originally able to take the promised land? Because they trust in God. Did they have more weapons than the enemy? Not necessarily. Was their army better arranged? Not necessarily. None of that is significant. As a matter of fact, it mentions them taking 100,000 men captive in verse 21. These 44,000 took 100,000 captive. You do the math. But God's not just going to protect them if they're not interested in trusting in Him. So look in verse 25. Years have passed, about 700 years. They acted treacherously, in verse 25, against the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, even, even Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he carried them away into exile. And then it mentions that this is the same tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. While they are trusting in God, they're victorious. If they lose their focus on God, they're easily defeated. So let's think about this in three specific cases in the book of 2 Chronicles. The author highlights that this is going to be important in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Now let's look at a few examples. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, Asa is the king of Judah. The Lord's given Asa peace in verses 5 and 6 of 2 Chronicles 14. He uses that time to strengthen the fortifications of Judah in verse 6. And he strengthens the army. So look in verse 7. The army begins to grow in verses 7 and 8. And he has about 580,000 men in his army. This is a huge army. Well, yes, but it's not as big as the guy who's coming against him in verse 9. Zerah the Cushite came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Morisha. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zeratha at Morisha. Then Asa called to the Lord, and the Lord God, and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord God, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Have you ever been fighting a battle like this? You come up to the lines and you don't have a plan. The battle is beyond plans. You're outnumbered. There's nothing you can do. You don't even know what to ask for. 
Asa doesn't say, if you could just help us with these things, we would be victorious, right? I don't even know how, how to explain what help we need. We are so power, powerless here before this great multitude. I can't even put into words what's, what specifically we need right now. But God, help us. And I want you to notice verse 12. So Asa routed the Cushites. Is that what it says? So the Lord routed the Cushites, right? Asa is a, is a player in God's game, but a minor player. Asa, excuse me, the Lord routed the Cushites before Asa and before Judah. But notice the emphasis as it continues in verse 13. Asa and his men continued to pursue them as far as Gerar. Many Cushites fell, so much so that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army, and they carried away much plunder. They destroyed all the cities around Gerar, for the dread of the Lord had fallen on them, and they despoiled all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. Do you notice the emphasis on God's activity? in all of this, God fights the battle for Asa. Think about 1 Kings chapter 20. A great army of the Arameans gathers together and God says to Ahab, I'm going to give you victory this time. And he gives him victory. But the army is so big that even though they've won a great victory, they're going to come back, right? They're going to regroup and come back. Notice that's not what happens here. This is the largest enumerated army of an enemy that Israel faces. Verse 9. In spite of the fact that this army is so large, and you would assume that many people survive, Israel is victorious in such a way that they never rise again. And notice they beat them back to Gerar. Now Gerar is in Israelite territory sometimes controlled by the Philistines, if you think about the stories of Abraham. But this is in the land of Canaan. Apparently, the Cushites have been so strong that they've made a stronghold inside the land of Canaan. And God not only defeats them on the battlefield, but also defeats them back at Gerar so that they no longer have a foothold in the land. Cush has the largest army ever numbered by the enemy in the Old Testament. Cush has the updated modern weaponry. They have chariots. Cush has the advantage. They've established themselves in the land. They've pushed out from Africa, and now they're established in the land of Palestine. And Asa comes to the battle line, and he says, we don't have any options here. We are powerless before this great multitude. In spite of all of these things, Israel is powerless, Cush is powerful, but the Lord still wins the victory. Asa trusts in the Lord even when things look helpless, and because of this, he is victorious. Asa's son, Jehoshaphat, faces a similar thing in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. He hears in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 that three nations have come up against him, Moab, Ammon, and Edom. Some of our translations have the Menuhites in verse 10, but they're identified as the people of Mount Seir throughout the rest of the chapter. So this is talking about the Edomites. But before Jehoshaphat even realizes that he's in trouble, that these nations that are to the east and to the south of him have conspired together, and then they've marched, and they're all the way at En Gedi, 
which is halfway up the Dead Sea, they're about a day's march from Jerusalem. He doesn't have any time to prepare for this great army. This is like the situations that we mentioned early on. The enemy has ambushed Israel, and Israel is unaware. Judah is unaware and unprepared. And they're so unprepared, there's no time to get ready. What do you do when the enemy is at your door? It's your gut reaction, right? How are you going to respond? What do you trust in? What does Jehoshaphat trust in in verse 3? He's so terrified that he immediately puts all of his attention to seek the Lord. Again, notice the emphasis in verses 3 and following. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Shouldn't they be gathering the troops together? Shouldn't they be worried about the battle plan? There's not enough time for that. They've got to do what's really important. They've got to seek the Lord. And just like Asa, his father, now Jehoshaphat stands in the assembly before the temple of the Lord and prays. Look in verse 6. O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. It's one thing saying that when things are going well. It's another thing when three powerful nations are marching against you. He talks about how that God had allowed them to take this land and had not allowed them to take the land of Moab, Ammon, and Edom in verse 10 when they were coming out of Egypt. But now they're being rewarded negatively for the kindness that they've shown to their brothers, their kin. And so he closes his prayer in verse 12. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This goes back to what Asa said, doesn't it? We're powerless before this great multitude. There's no time for a plan. There's no weapon that they're going to be able to use to be able to deliver them. And as all of the people are calling out to God, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jehaziel in verse 14, and he prophesies and tells the people, God is going to deliver you. Now I want you to focus in particular on verse 17. He says, you need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. That should sound familiar. That's almost identically what Moses has said to the people in Exodus chapter 14. The Red Sea is on one side. The Egyptians are on the other. Moses says, don't worry about fighting the Egyptians. God is going to take care of this. Just stand aside and God will do everything. God is going to deliver you. When Jehoshaphat hears this, what would your response be? Well, it still hasn't happened yet, right? Jehoshaphat's immediate response was to bow down and worship God, and the priest and the Levites began singing praises to God. This is before the battle has been fought. They've just heard God's going to do something. They have enough faith that the battle has already been won, that they are rejoicing in the victory that God will accomplish. This reminds me of Revelation 15, where even though right now the beast and the false prophet and, and his false image, all of them seem to be in control of the world, 
But Christians have seen that God is coming to bring judgment and they begin to sing the song of Moses even before the battle has been fought. They get ready the next day and they go out to the place that they've been told to go. It's interesting again what's not mentioned here. There are no weapons. No soldiers coming with them, but the priests and the Levites are leading the people out and singing. They're spending the whole time praising God as they're walking out to the battle scene. They don't know how this is going to work out, but they just know God's going to take care of it. They have faith that God will take care of it. So they're singing, give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is everlasting in verse 22. Now look at verse 22. What a phenomenal verse. As they are singing... As they are singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes. Did you hear that? The Lord set ambushes. What do you have to know to be able to set an ambush? You've got to know that the enemy's coming, right? Judah doesn't know the enemy's coming. They're already in their backyard before they know. But God knew. God was already prepared. Judah didn't know that the enemy was coming, but God was prepared. And He sets an ambush against the enemy. So while they are singing... The enemy begins fighting each other. God has prepared for Israel's deliverance, for Judah's deliverance, before it has even happened. God ambushes the enemy. Early on in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, Abijah is ambushed by Jeroboam. But he calls out to God and God delivers him. God can't be caught off guard. God can't be surprised. God can't be ambushed. But he ambushes those who thought they were sneaking up on his people. Because of this, when Judah gets to the site, there is no battle. They just stand and see the salvation of the Lord. They see the corpses there. And it takes them three days to take away all of the spoil. It never specifically mentions how many warriors are being talked about here, but it takes three days to carry away all of the spoil. A lot of warriors have died. And God has caused Israel to rejoice over their enemies in verse 19. The Lord delivers Judah from Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Three enemies plot secretly and move stealthily to outnumber Israel. Judah doesn't have time to pre make preparations. They turn to God in their powerlessness. And in spite of their lack of power, the Lord's hand is mighty and He delivers. No one surprises the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Look later on now in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Chronicles spends a lot of time talking about Hezekiah. He's a great king, and he's done a lot of great things in chapter 29 through 31. And it says, After these great acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib king of Assyria came and besieged the fortified cities, that is plural. A lot of times our greatest act of commitment to God are followed by the greatest difficulties that we will face. That's what happened to Hezekiah. He's been faithful. He's tried to bring people back to the Lord, but now he faces still more difficulties with the threat from the outside. Sennacherib is coming. If you know anything about Assyrian history, you know that Sennacherib brags about coming into this part of Judah and taking 46 cities. 
There's only a few fortified cities left. Jerusalem's one of them, and Lachish is one of them in verse 9. He's presently at Lachish, and he's coming to Jerusalem. Things are not looking good. What's Hezekiah going to do? Surely if God was going to deliver him, he would have delivered him 46 cities earlier. Maybe he needs to find a different plan. Maybe he needs to trust in something else. As a matter of fact, it seems like Hezekiah may be going through the same thought process. So the first couple of verses of 2 Chronicles 32, he's going around trying to fortify the wall, trying to make more shields and weapons for his soldiers. And you think, is he trusting in the Lord or is he deciding that he needs to be trusting in something else after all of these defeats? But he gathers the people together in Jerusalem at the city gate in verses 7 and 8, and he reminds them to trust in the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one who is with us is greater than the one who is with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people rely on those words. But it doesn't mean things are getting better. Sennacherib is at Lachish. And he sends messengers to mock Hezekiah, to mock the people of Judah. Is this really what you're trusting in? Are you sure you want to you follow this path? I've faced all of these other gods, all of these other kings who said they trusted in their God and their God could deliver me. All over the ancient Near East, I've set up all of these monuments to the fact that we have defeated these nations and their gods. Your God is going to be no different than the other gods. And if Hezekiah was really religious, why is he taking away all of the high places and places of worship? He doesn't understand that Hezekiah is doing this to bring people back to the Lord. He thinks that Hezekiah has not been very religious. Do you really think that you can deliver from my hand? You think about what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 15. Do you really think that you can deliver from my hand? Remember what Hezekiah said? With him is just a hand or an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to fight our battles. It's the hand of the Lord we're worried about, not your hand, Sennacherib. Hezekiah and the people remain faithful to God, but they get more bad news. You know Lachish in verse 9? doesn't exist anymore. They found Sennacherib's palace wall in Nineveh, and it depicts him defeating the city of Lachish. Now they're marching to Jerusalem. Surely trusting in God is getting a little old-fashioned. We can't keep doing this, right? But notice in verse 20 that Hezekiah doesn't change his approach. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he knows he can't fight Assyria. He knows God hasn't stopped Assyria up until this point, but he's still trusting God to deliver him. And so he and Isaiah are praying in verse 20. Their prayers are recorded in 2 Kings and in Isaiah. But notice the Lord's response in verse 21. The Lord sent His angel and destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and official in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his own God, some of his children killed him there with a sword. Isn't that amazing? Sennacherib, who said, No God can deliver from my hand. His God can't deliver from the hand of his own children. And yet God does deliver from Sennacherib's hand. 
So in verse 22, the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib and the hand of Assyria and from the hand of all others who guided them on every side. Now look out across the audience this evening and nobody seems particularly taken back by the fact that Assyria has fallen. But man, was that big news. This is the first time Assyria has been defeated. The Babylonians want to hear about this. All of the nations in the world begin contacting Hezekiah. How did you do this? In verse 23. The Babylonians send envoys in verse 31. This is incredible. Assyria, the most powerful nation in the world. The unbeatable Assyria. Mesopotamia, Syria, Egypt, Palestine, unbeatable, even unbeatable by Judah up until this point. All of a sudden they're gone and they just flee. Notice Chronicles mentions that it's just the important warriors who seem to be killed. Kings and Isaiah said it's 185,000. The main officials and leaders and commanders, 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrian army. The Lord stops the Assyrians. Nobody else has been able to do this. God has power that no other God has. This God, Hezekiah's God, our God, is not like the gods of the other nations made of wood and stone. He's a God who can assist, who can deliver. His hand is powerful. So what do we learn from these stories? The Lord's powerful. He cannot be outmaneuvered. Think about the adversaries that the Lord overcomes. The Cushite army is the largest army specifically numbered in the Old Testament. The Lord devastates them, so much so that this large army never recovers and has to leave the territory that they've been occupying. Edom, Ammon, and Moab sneak up against Judah to surprise them, but instead of surprising them, they are surprised and God sets an ambush against them. The unstoppable Assyria, who chooses this city that they want to take and just takes it, is stopped outside the walls of Jerusalem. And did you notice who stopped them in verse 21? Did God send a great army of angels to stop the most powerful nation in the world? He sent an angel to go wipe out 185,000 people. No situation is too difficult for God to deliver from. What's the point of these stories, though? When is Chronicles written? Chronicles has a lot of the same events that Kings has, but they're coming from a different time period and a different purpose. Kings is written at the very beginning of captivity to show Israel and Judah this is the reason we're in captivity. We have forsaken God and our sin has destroyed us. Sin always leads to exile and death. But Chronicles is written many years after that. Israel and Judah, what's left of them, have come back from Mesopotamia and they're back in the land. They understand that sin leads to exile and death. Now they need to know that God is powerful enough to recreate them. God is powerful enough to deliver them. Why focus on these stories? There is no standing army in Israel when Chronicles is written. 
There is no king in Israel when Chronicles is written. So why focus on these things? The point is not that Israel is going to be able to fight against their physical enemies. But the Lord delivers from impossible situations spiritually. Everything that God does physically shows what He can do spiritually. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. Four men bring their friend to Jesus. They can't find a way in, so they begin to dig through the roof. Seeing that this man cannot walk, that he has to be let down on his mat, Jesus, realizing his problem, says, Son, your sins are forgiven. But that's not his problem, right? He can't walk. That's his problem. That's what's wrong. Can Jesus not see that? Even the religious leaders begin to say, Why is Jesus saying this? No one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus says, that's right. No one can do this but God. No one can deliver this person but God. But I'm going to do something physically so that you can see more importantly why this guy's here and what I can do for him, right? Get up and walk. And by doing this physically, Jesus shows the deliverance that he can offer spiritually. What is the author of Chronicles trying to get across by telling us that Asa defeated Zerah, that Jehoshaphat defeated Edom, Ammon, and Moab, that Hezekiah defeated the Assyrians? What's the point of this? The point is not physical, but the point is spiritual. Where are you tonight in your battle against Satan? Has the enemy snuck up on you? And is he at your door and you didn't even know he was coming? Are you watching as the enemy continues to wreck your life and it doesn't seem that you can do anything to stop him? Have you come to the battle line and you realize as you approach the line there's nothing you can do? This is a hopeless situation. I can't fight this enemy. You're in the same position as Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiah. And their stories mean something to us. Satan may have a grip on your life. Satan may seem unstoppable right now. It may seem like the routine is just for Satan to destroy you, just like Assyria is going through the cities of Judah. But God gives us victory. These stories remind us of what God does spiritually and deliver us from helpless and powerless situations. Jesus has come to earth, and he has bound Satan. Jesus didn't come in Mark chapter 3 to sneak us out the back door while Satan wasn't looking. Jesus came to bind Satan, and we step over him on the way out to freedom and victory. Jesus has come to give us victory, to give those who are powerless, trapped in a cell, in Satan's control, victory. Jesus has come to die on the cross, to wash away our sins, to bring us out from our enslavery to Satan. You can have that victory tonight. If you have not been washed of your sins, if you find yourself in the position of some of these kings, you are powerless before this enemy, and you need God's help. Jesus has died on the cross to deliver you from these sins, from this enslavement. Jesus can rescue the powerless. Please come as we stand and sing.